From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. John Hickenlooper, one-on-one today. He says if Coloradans elect him senator and if Democrats regain control, he'll read it as a mandate to get everyone insured. This is something that the Democrats have been talking about. And when I'm out there and I, and I talk to Republicans who are trying to decide whether they're going to vote for me, the questions they ask me are about health care. I'll ask if sky-high insurance rates in the mountains are part of his legacy. Plus, listener questions about his ethics and whether he's suited for the Senate. And Hickenlooper anticipates seismic shifts in employment in a new energy economy. And if somebody does have to move, which some people probably will have to move, I can't, can't control that. These are market forces. If somebody does move, we should be able to provide them support. Thank you to our dedicated members and to everyone who donated during the recent fund drive. Because of you, CPR continues to grow, delivering news and music programs we can all rely on. It's incredibly powerful that tens of thousands of listeners across the state voluntarily make room in their budgets to support Colorado Public Radio. Thank you for your generosity, and thank you for being a part of the CPR membership community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If Democrat John Hickenlooper is elected to the U.S. Senate, he'd be sworn in in January amidst a lot of uncertainty. The uncertainty of businesses surviving the winter, the uncertainty of how COVID-19 and the flu will interact, and the uncertainty around a vaccine. Well, in our last big interview before Election Day, I ask the former governor why he's better suited than incumbent Republican Cory Gardner to guide Colorado and the nation through all of that unpredictability. Well, in the first place, I would have made sure we didn't get to the position we're in, that the negligence in the White House, it, you know, that, that school of thought that if we just don't talk about it, it'll go away, which is what the first month or two of the White House response was. And then the incompetence of not having a unified message best practices, taking the advice of our top medical experts, and then making sure we did it. I mean, if you compare our response to Canada and, and their response and the efficiency, there are some studies that show that 100,000 of the people who died in the United States would still be alive if we had had the same success that Canada had. My goal has always been to utilize, when we went through the wildfires and the floods uh, in my first term as governor, and we were upside down from the, the Great Recession. So we we're trying to rebuild the economy in this time of crisis. And the most important thing is to keep everyone unified. And our response has not been unified from the White House, from Congress, from the Senate. Even now, six months after the CARES Act came out, we still don't have protections for COVID. Right? I mean, we don't have relief for all the people that lost their work jobs, all the businesses that are trying to figure out how they're going to get through the winter. How can we be rushing a Supreme Court nomination forward when we don't have COVID relief? So I would be out there making sure we had a supply chain and testing capacity for everyone who wanted it. And it'd be fast. You could not, this four-day turnaround, how can someone open a business and make sure their employees are safe when they, can't, they have to wait three or four days to get a, a test results back? Same thing with facial protection, face masks and plastic shields, face shields. You know, small businesses are going to need this support to be able to reopen. Now, you talk about Congress not acting on COVID relief, on stimulus, and Republicans will say that Democrats were not 
uh, good partners in that conversation <laughs> in Washington. They're pointing fingers right at each other. I mean, that's part of the, why I, I got into this race. That's why I want to go back to Washington is the one thing that I remember so clearly when we had those wildfires was the importance of bringing everyone together and making sure that there wasn't a lot of finger pointing on blame or who should have done something first or did someone make a, a, a mistake. You always want to make sure you understand what happened, but you got to get a unified response very quickly, and especially in Congress. You draw a parallel to the floods, the fires that you dealt with as an executive, and that's very different from being a legislator. And, and I just want to point out that right up until you ran for Senate, you said repeatedly that you were more cut out for an executive role than a legislative one. Alex Lacosi, a structural engineer from Lakewood, has a question about that. Okay. As an executive, your administration can set its own agenda, whereas in the Senate, you're one of 100 different legislators. You can sponsor legislation, but getting anything passed requires the support of senators from other states who have different priorities. I'm concerned that your past experience as an entrepreneur, mayor, and governor may not be useful preparation for serving in a legislative body. Lukosi, by the way, says he's leaning strongly towards voting for you. But (laughs) that's good. (laughs) This is an important distinction, guiding an effort as an executive versus a legislator, one of 100. Sure. Why are you the guy for that? Well, here's the, the bottom line is, as a governor, you don't get to make your own agenda, right? Things happen. All of a sudden, you're in the worst drought since the Great Depression. Suddenly, you've got these wildfires that are out of control, and you don't have the resources, you don't have the the personnel ready. You've got to adjust and create in real time best practices because, and we understood this early on, it wasn't going to be just one wildfire. It's going to be a number of wildfires. And what were those best practices that we could learn from other states? And how do we bring people together? In those communities got where we had the, the massive wildfires, we created systems of, of addressing the shortages. So making sure people got housing, making sure they had food and resources. And that then when we rebuilt, it wasn't people fighting over it. And if you were to go down and talk to Mayor Southers, conservative Republican, former Attorney Springs. General in Colorado Springs, and ask him how our work has been both rebuilding after the fires and the flood in Colorado Springs, but also re- helping to rejuvenate their economy in such a way that that it wasn't lagging Denver's and, and the Northern Front Range. I think he'd say that it was a bipartisan effort, that there was never a question of pointing fingers or not working together. So it's the same skills. Uh, and I was mistaken in that sense that that there are different skills involved. Certainly the jobs are different. I don't deny that being an executive is different than being in a, in a legislative body. But I believe the way Congress was designed, and this is having talked to uh, several dozen people, you know, you were supposed to go out in life and and have get into business and make a living, and you could be, maybe be a teacher, or own a brew pub, whatever. If you're successful, you try to give back to the community. In my case, I served on 40 nonprofit boards and committees, and then somehow I ended up running for mayor. And I took the lessons of a small business, that optimism, that problem solving, and I took it into local government to try and do a better job of serving the people. I was serving people in restaurants. I wanted to serve in government, and it worked. I took the same experiences into state government and, again, tried to bring people together and address issues. I think those are the kinds of people that were intended by our founding fathers to go back to Congress. I mean, once you've been in business, when you see how laws are made and how sometimes they have unintended consequences, you get better at predicting that. So I look at 
what is most needed in Washington right now, especially in the Senate, is people that aren't good at getting on cable TV. They don't want to get on cable TV all the time. They don't need the, the spotlight, but they're good at getting people to work together. To health care, which is one of the biggest issues between you and Senator Gardner in this race. It's also one we know Coloradans feel strongly about. Has the pandemic increased your sense of urgency when it comes to health care, health care coverage, and the changes you'd like to see in America's system? Yeah, no question. It's one thing to be talking about universal coverage, and we're discussing it and negotiating it year after year. And then when you come and see a, a pandemic, and you begin to see the, the grave inequities in people's access to health care and how that translates into pre-existing conditions that make certain populations far more vulnerable to something like COVID-19. If you look at the Latino mortality rates, where they're almost double what their, their proportionality would be in the, in the general population, that's not acceptable. And the best immediate way to address that is to make sure that we have Again, universal health care, but we also do a better job of making sure that all communities have access to health care. I think of it in terms of a, a medical home. A family should know where they can go and talk to a physician's assistant or a nurse or a doctor, but have a medical home where they know they can go and not wait until they're really sick. So do you think that the pandemic has accelerated how fast you want to get to what you call yes. universal coverage? Absolutely. I think that, that we have to this notion of having a public option that can be on a sliding scale and for people that can't find health care on the exchange, um, yeah, I think that's crucial. You know, one of the biggest disagreements I have with Cory Gardner is he still wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. He still wants to, you know, roll back the protections for pre-existing conditions. He says he's got a, you know, 117-word bill that's going to solve that. Every fact independent fact finder says it's a sham. So, we have 2.4 million people in Colorado who have some form of pre-existing conditions. I want to make sure we maintain their coverage and at the same time dramatically accelerate our capacity to give coverage to everyone. Be very clear about what the end goal is here. So when you say universal coverage, does that mean a universal public option that private insurance goes by the wayside? No, no, no. What is what is the end point for I you? have never, never said that we should take away people's uh, ability to have private insurance. I got booed in California for, say, for saying that we didn't want socialized medicine in that sense. But half of the people on private insurance don't like their plan, don't, don't think it satisfies their medical needs, and they're, can't, they have a hard time making their financial payments. The other half is happy with it. So I've never said we should take away private insurance. We need to get make sure that people that can't find coverage that they need, that they can afford, uh, and that it serves their medical needs, there's got to be some sort of a sliding scale. And the sliding scale is to make sure that it's not unfairly advantaging against uh, against private insurance. A private insurer. So one concern with the public option is that the reimbursement rates would drop and that this could be especially hard on rural hospitals. So there was this consulting firm, Navigant, that found the public option could put half of rural hospitals at high risk of closing. How would your plan protect rural Coloradans? So we faced this when I was first expanding Medicaid, that this was a concern that, that we were going to endanger the, the muscle of rural health care. And in fact, it was just the opposite. 
I think the experts believe that there were 10 to 12 rural hospitals that probably would have closed if we didn't expand Medicaid. That of that, the 400,000 people that got coverage when we expanded Medicaid, something like 50,000 were in rural areas. Uh, and in many cases, they utilize those rural hospitals. Now, it's true the reimbursement rates are often not as high as they would be otherwise. But based on our experience, they were high enough to keep those hospitals in business. Because there was less uncompensated care? Exactly. Because there was less uncompensated care. And also, they had more people coming through. In other words, there are efficiencies of scale. So if you have more patients and you're busier, it's easier to to get by on, and maybe you're not getting quite as much money for every patient, but everybody's being more efficient because there are enough patients so that you're each nurse practitioner, each doctor, their day, they're seeing patients that are actually helping pay the bills. Meanwhile, the high country especially has some of the highest insurance premiums <laughs> in the country. John Hickenlooper, isn't that your legacy? Well, that's, that's not my legacy. That's true in every resort area all around the country. And we are still trying. I mean, Governor Polis is addressing it even as we speak. I mean, there are a bunch of different reasons it would take us an hour or two to really go through it. We'll figure this out eventually. But you're right. That is a serious issue. It is a we'll place. figure this out eventually is not exactly the kind of encouraging statement a voter might want to hear. Well, during by, a by eventually, I'm not talking about 10 years. I'm talking about in a year. This is a an issue where you have these uh, split demographics. You know, places like resort towns in not just in Colorado but across the country end up with hospitals that are designed towards a higher-paying clientele, and they don't do as good a job of dealing with the uh, you know so many of the workers in their community who don't have additional resources. And I think the one solution that is being uh, expanded is to make sure we have more clinics like community health centers, things like that. Salud, I'm sure you know, you know who Salud is here on the Eastern Plains. They have proven to be a very uh, successful adaptation of making sure they're in situations where they have enough, it makes it sound like a factory, but throughput, uh, a sufficient number of patients so that they can build a clinic and actually have that clinic have enough patients to pay for itself. A week after the election, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments on a lawsuit to overturn the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. The court is expected to rule next year, by which time Democrats may, may have control of the Senate. If the court rules against the ACA, what immediate specific steps should Congress take? Well, uh, there are a myriad of possibilities. So they, they could completely disintegrate the Affordable Care Act. They could a portion it in certain ways. Uh, I think we'll have to see what that is. But hopefully, and I believe there's a good possibility of this, assuming that the, that the Democrats have a majority in the U.S. Senate, uh, that there will be sufficient Republicans who recognize that we have a viable, cost-effective solution for, for coverage for every person in this country uh, that will get the five or six Republicans we need to get to 60 votes and then actually strengthen the Affordable Care Act. I mean, don't forget, the Affordable Care Act is the only major program, to my knowledge, in the United States history, where when Congress enacted it, there was never the opportunity to improve it. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, you know, in the years following the original enactment of those programs, Congress said, oh, well, this isn't working. Let's improve it. And we'll fix this. And let's do that. I mean, the Republicans for 10 years now have been solely focused on 
repealing it, getting rid of it completely. Which makes me wonder if your sense that there might be five or six Republicans uh, with the late John McCain not on the scene who would support the Democrats is a bit Pollyanna. I don't think so. I mean, you you might be right. Your crystal ball might be better than mine. But I think that we're seeing in these elections, if the Democrats do do very well in these elections, it is going to be a mandate around universal health care. In other words, this is something that the Democrats have been talking about. And when I'm out there and I, and I talk to Republicans who are trying to decide whether they're going to vote for me, the questions they ask me are about health care. I'd like to talk about climate change, Governor. Your plan calls for, among other things, net zero carbon by 2050. Uh-huh. Uh, you've been criticized by both sides on this one. Some environmentalists are mad that you oppose the Green New Deal, which would speed up the transition. On the other side, you have people like Senator Gardner, who says that your plan is a job killer in the fossil fuel industry. Gardner often points to your statement that you'd like fracking to, uh, your words here, become obsolete. I'm just interested as a policymaker how you weighed those trade-offs. Well, that's the magic, right? And that's why it's funny that whether you're an executive or in, or in the legislative body itself, in both cases, you're trying to align the self-interests of the competing factions. So in this case, Obviously, there's a, a. So, if both sides are are ticked off, you've achieved your goal. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, you're not you're not far away from a solution. Um, I think that many people on both sides don't see with sufficient clarity what the opportunity is here. The two Comanche plants down in in Pueblo County that are in the process of being closed, coal fired, coal fired plants, and they're going to be replaced with wind, solar, and batteries. And this demonstrates a dramatic continuous reduction in the cost of of wind, a surprisingly in the last five or six years reduction in the cost of solar, and a dramatic reduction in the cost of batteries. Because what's going to happen when we replace Comanche 1 and Comanche 2, the monthly electric bills are going to go down for consumers. So for the first time, we're going to get completely renewable energy competing against an existing coal plant. So it's cheaper than an existing coal plant For the first time, we're going to get completely renewable energy at a lower cost. And that's going to bring the force of the market to accelerate this transition to clean energy. And obviously, there's going to be a transition period just like there was in the Industrial Revolution, like there was when when automobiles came on on the scene and suddenly, literally in two or three years, transformed mobility. That's going to happen again. But just as it happened then, we will have four times, five times more jobs than we lose. And the challenge is going to be, how do we get our community colleges up so that they're training people who are at risk of losing their job or their profession in these new skills? Four to five times the jobs. Yes. I mean, where do you get that figure? That's uh, I can get you the, the people that gave it to me. There's a consulting group in Berkeley that's been working on this stuff and looking at what clean tech, the kinds of jobs is generating now. And then as you accelerate this transition where those jobs come from. Yeah, because the question is, if you're a coal miner in Craig, Colorado, right now, uh, you know, that job on the other side of the state isn't necessarily right, it's not your a, jam. It's not their, fir- your, their first choice. Listen, I got laid off July 6th of 1986. I'll remember the day for the rest of my life. As a petroleum geologist. And, and, and I didn't just lose my job. There, there were over 10,000 geologists lost their jobs in about a four-year period there. I lost my profession. And... I mean, back then, there was no government program to retrain me, to give me additional skills. The goal is going to be, how do we provide financial incentives so that 
there are entrepreneurs, there are new businesses set up in these rural parts of the state. And part of that is making sure we have broadband. One of the things that I worked very hard on, and I think it should be a bipartisan issue when I go to Washington, is making sure that we have broadband in every city and town in America. By the end of this year, we'll have broadband in every city and town in Colorado. Not at sufficient speed. I'm not defending the excellence of the program, but it is a foothold. And once you get broadband, then you can give tax incentives. We started Jumpstart Colorado. Well, we talked about it probably six years ago. And it provides if an entrepreneur starts a business in a struggling rural part of the state, they pay, nor do their employees pay, any tax of any kind to the state for four years. You know, I think we're at 1,200 or 1,500 jobs, but they're in small towns where if you're a town of 3,000 people and suddenly there are 40 or 50 new jobs in a new small business, it makes everyone more optimistic. So incentives, skills training, so people are, are trained for those jobs. And then there's got to be some responsibility of government to provide for that transition. And if somebody does have to move, which some people probably will have to move, I can't, can't control that. These are market forces. If somebody does move, we should be able to provide them support so that there's a transition, you know, that they are not having to go deeper into debt to take care of their families. You favor making fossil fuel extraction and especially fracking obsolete. But oil and gas companies have proven reserves that they want to extract. So recently we learned ExxonMobil plans to increase its carbon dioxide emissions 17 percent by 2025, doubling its earnings. Without any limits or penalties on the production side, doesn't your plan lack teeth? <laughs> you know, it, it does lack teeth to a certain extent, although they're going against the market forces. And if you look at a number of the large energy... Well, they presumably aren't if they foresee a profit. Yeah. Oh, trust me, I understand how ExxonMobil works. If you look at some of the larger uh, energy companies, they are moving to wind and solar in dramatic fashion. And some of the, the large oil and gas companies are writing down some of their reserves. Look at what BP did several months ago. This is going to be a transition period that's going to be very challenging for everybody. But we've got to recognize that the costs of doing nothing are exorbitant. I mean, this, you know, the Donald Trump, what I call, you know, his approach to the pandemic was, if we just don't talk about it, it'll probably go away, which has basically been his and the Republicans' attitude towards climate change. And yet we are now beginning to see the enormous costs of these wildfires, the enormous cost of the the hurricanes along the Gulf and the Carolinas. There are progressives in your party who look at all those factors and say, ban fracking. You know, even if you lose the electoral college votes from Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, I have to talk to Joe Biden about that. <laughs> I think that's but they can talk to you about that in Colorado. I, I, again, these are market forces. We're going to move and we have to move to a clean energy economy and we've got to do it in real time. We no longer have the luxury of waiting a few years and continuing the debate. So you might as well ban automobiles. Banning things has never been the most effective way to get this country to change. And, and the way America historically changes in, in dramatic fashion is by having choices that are clearly better for their future. And I think now as we're beginning to monetize what the costs of doing nothing are, we will begin to see real action. And again, this is not something that should be Democrats or Republicans and, and, and strictly partisan. This should be a bipartisan solution. Another issue that's come up in this race is your ethics. Earlier this year, the state's Independent Ethics Commission 
found that you violated the state's gift ban twice, once by accepting a ride on a private plane, another by accepting some perks on a trip to Italy. The commission dismissed four other complaints against you. We spoke to listener Johannes Lutz of Longmont, who works in the public library system there. Lutz says he voted for you, but the ethics thing really gave him pause. Is this a pattern? And also, I think the bigger picture is, how can I trust that he understands the Constitution and the law and et cetera enough so that this doesn't happen again? Where, how do I know that he gets it, that there wasn't power peddling or position peddling or, or, or what have you, um, influence peddling? So let me be clear. So this was two instances where uh, we were found in violation. The Denver Post called them honest mistake relatively minor. They were inadvertent. You know, I accepted responsibility. I, I paid the $2,700 fine. These allegations were put forward by a dark money Republican group whose sole purpose was to gather material that they could turn into attack ads. And the only reason they're doing that is because it became clear to them that they could not defend Cory Gardner's abysmal record without a barrage of attack ads against me. And, you know, the fact that Cory Gardner wanted to remove protections for pre-existing medical conditions from 2.4 million Coloradans, the, the fact that Cory Gardner hasn't been a champion of climate change and uh, has continued to support Donald Trump as he rolls back protections for clean air and clean water, he can't defend that record. So they wanted to create something they could attack me with. Mr. Lutz is asking pretty specifically here, though, that how do I know you get it? Well, that there wasn't power peddling. I mean, you know, I just say, like, we're talking about <laughs> private jet rides and a Maserati limo here. I mean, even if that stuff is paid for out of pocket, which would have uh, meant that these uh, issues were not ethics breaches. I mean, you know, like, do you worry about losing touch with average life and whether there's too much coziness and power peddling? Well, in so so the, the, the trip to Europe, I paid out of my own pocket. So that wasn't power peddling. That was I was trying to sell Colorado to a hundred a room full of a hundred CEOs and people that could open offices and create jobs in Colorado. The trip to on the private plane was with a nonprofit foundation that are not influencers. I was going to the commissioning of the USS Colorado to give a speech in my role as a governor. If you actually look at what the commission found me guilty of, it was the fact that and I don't, I still don't understand the legality of this, but it was because there were a couple of other legislators from the General Assembly that were going to the commissioning, and they weren't invited to a dinner that I was invited to, which was somehow connected to the flight. Again, these were inadvertent errors. They, I mean, there's a team of people uh, uh, that looked at every single trip I took, and we did everything we could to conform to it. There was no ever any doubt or, or suggestion that I was trying to you know, do anything unethical. They were they were honest mistakes. And I can guarantee, Mr. Uh, Lutz, that, I mean, I've been doing this for 16 years and I did, I accept responsibility. We made a couple of mistakes. It will not happen again. We have about a minute left. Are you concerned about the debt? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think anyone should be concerned of the debt. Do you uh, imagine cuts somewhere? I mean, you've talked about massive federal investment here. Well, actually, if you look at my approach to climate change and my approach to getting universal health care, there are not these are not massive trillion dollar uh, initiatives in 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 both those cases. I think that the 
the stimulus to the economy will more than compensate the government for whatever investments are necessary. Isn't that what we were supposed to believe about Trump's tax cuts? <laughs> Aren't you making the same no, argument? No, it's quite the different, quite different. Uh, his tax cut gave a, a, a trillion dollar tax break to corporations and wealthy Americans, uh, and it didn't come close to paying for itself. What I'm talking about is using market forces to look at how do we take coal-fired plants and replace them with wind, solar, and batteries. And we're not raising taxes. We're not, you know, if you look at what we're doing with Comanche, that's not federal money that's going in there. It's not state money. It's money that Excel was going to use to rebuild their capacity to generate electricity. That's what we're talking about. So I here's my fear about the national debt is that you, you give a trillion-dollar tax break to large corporations that in many cases weren't even asking for it. Uh, and then suddenly you are unprepared, you are negligent, and then you are incompetent in your response to COVID-19 so that the economy gets turned completely upside down. Now we do have real issues with the national debt, but this is not the time to turn off the spigot or else this is how you can end up in a Great Depression. Governor, thank you so much for being this. You bet. Always a pleasure. Democrat John Hickenlooper is running for Senate. The former Denver mayor and former governor hopes to unseat Republican Cory Gardner. Gardner declined our offer for equal time, but we'll review his record and policy positions next week. If the major party candidates don't appeal to you, you can listen to my interview with libertarian Ramon Doan at CPR.org. That's also where you'll find our comprehensive voter's guide, with candidates' positions and an explanation of the many ballot measures this year. Colorado clerks have rejected 100,000 ballots since 2016, mostly because of mismatched signatures. That finding, after a CPR news investigation, made some voters wonder how to make sure their signature is valid. CPR's Haley Sanchez has the answer to this Colorado Wonders question. Martha Risk of Longmont says she's an avid voter. She got married in 2016 and changed her last name. She thought she updated her signature on her voter registration. So when she cast her ballot two years later and got a notice from her clerk's office, she was confused. During the 2018 primary, I had found out that my ballot didn't count due to an unmatched signature. Risk says by the time she got a notice that her signature was invalid, the election had been called, and the candidates she voted for ended up winning. So she didn't think much more about it. But now she's concerned about her vote counting on November 3rd. That prompted her to write us through Colorado Wonders. My question was kind of around the signature verification process and what I could have done and what I should do now, because I still don't necessarily know. Can I change my signature or update it? Great question. I think Molly Fitzpatrick is the clerk and recorder in Boulder County where Risk lives. I got them together on video chat to get some advice. Signature verification is really the cornerstone of the mail ballot election model. CPR News found that signature issues are the main reason that over the past four years, Colorado clerks have discarded more than 100,000 ballots in statewide elections. In Colorado, signatures get reviewed by people, called election judges. Some also get reviewed through machines. They compare the signature they see on a ballot to the signature saved on their voters' registration record. If they're able to make a match, great. And if they're not, then it gets escalated 
to another team of judges who look at it. This second set of judges compares the signatures and tries to make a match. And if they cannot make a match, then that voter will um, start to go through the cure process. The clerk's office has to notify that voter within three days. And they'll have eight days after the election to cure their ballot, meaning to prove that the ballot is really theirs. I think that's really interesting and good to hear. I don't recall how I registered to vote. And is mm-hmm. the signature coming from my driver's license or a different voter registration? The thing that we are looking at is um, what is your name in our statewide voter registration database? And we're looking at how that voter signed their voter registration form. Fitzpatrick says election judges have been trained by experts and look at the signature holistically. They'll look at the way that the voter signed their first name and say, oh, does this mirror the way that this voter has always signed their name previously? And then there are a lot of other tools like looking at where The voter's pen may have rested at a certain point in time. Are there certain loops that were consistent from the previous name to the new last name? Does it help to have a witness sign? For example, that's something that my husband and I do for each other's ballot just as an extra precaution, I guess. But I don't know if that (laughs) does anything. Fitzpatrick says the witness signature doesn't really do much in this case. It's mostly used for folks who have trouble writing and can't sign their names. She says people concerned about their signature should sign up for the statewide ballot tracking system. They'll get emails or texts when their ballots are mailed and processed. Across the state, voters should look for a letter in the mail if they're concerned because this is how counties are required to notify voters of a signature discrepancy. And it does not mean that it's too late because that's the purpose of this letter is to say, hey, we need you to take action in order for your ballot to be counted. She says people can cure their ballots with a text message. And she recommends people vote early so they have more time to fix any issues. Risk says she's glad she didn't have this issue during a presidential election, but now she feels prepared for November 3rd. It's nice to hear that So many things have been updated and new technologies are being introduced. So if you're like risk and concerned your vote won't count, sign up for the state's ballot tracking system. After you vote, be on the lookout for mail from your clerk's office asking you to cure your ballot. And if you get one of those letters, remember to actually cure it so your vote counts. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. We answer a lot of questions about voting and about the candidates and issues on your ballot at CPR.org slash 2020. Find more information about how to vote in Colorado and our complete guide to candidates and statewide ballot measures there. And if you have a Colorado Wonders question about anything, election or not, head over to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. We'll be right back with Pandemic Life for People Who Are Undocumented. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This year's elections could be the most important of our lifetimes. As you get ready to vote, look to CPR News for context and clarity in our daily reporting. And visit CPR.org for a free voter's guide, a comprehensive resource to help as you consider everything on the ballot. Get to know the issues and candidates you're unfamiliar with, including third parties. Find the CPR News 2020 Voter's Guide at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The pandemic's been stressful, and for undocumented immigrants in Colorado, it's made a complicated life even more so. CPR's May Ortega recently visited Pueblo to see what folks there are experiencing. 
So there should be more cups somewhere. It's a sunny Saturday morning in a Pueblo neighborhood, and the scent of steak and eggs drifts through the air in Ana Agustin's home. She's making breakfast for her cousins. The women are keeping up their weekly tradition of hanging out on weekends and basking in each other's friendship. Agustin says she needs it with the year she's been having. I just take one day at a time because if I stress, that's when my mental health starts going like, ugh. I start overthinking about it. 2020 didn't start off perfectly for her, but there have been some bright spots. Agustin loves helping people through her job at a community health clinic in Pueblo. She says it makes her feel fulfilled. She has a seven-year-old son who she loves endlessly. On top of that, she and her boyfriend bought their own house in January. Then came COVID-19. She had to take three months off work because she has thyroid cancer. And that diagnosis puts her at high risk of severe illness if she catches COVID-19. The 28-year-old says she has honest conversations with her son about her health. Baby, I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow. And I tell, I tell him all the time, I don't say it to hurt you. I say it because I love you and you have to be independent. You have to keep pushing, 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 you know. She went back to work in July, but Agustin is under other kinds of stress, partly stemming from her citizenship status. Her parents brought her and her brothers to Colorado illegally from Mexico when she was a little girl. Right now, she's protected from deportation through the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Act. But the program's future has been up in the air for years, and that's taken a toll on her entire family. We're doing everything and this literally could be taken from us any day. And it's stressful. Like my brother, I've seen them cry. It's not guaranteed that we're going to get the renewal. All we can do is pay for it and try to get it. That uncertainty, coupled with her cancer, has definitely taken a toll on her mental health. And she's trying her best to handle it all, telling herself to take things day by day, surrounding herself with friends. But those things can only do so much. We're all human. Like, I do the same job, the same or even better than everybody else. Like, you know, like, I have my own stuff. Working my ass off, it's everything I've Everything I've ever, like, dreamed of, I do my best to work for it, you know, so. Alfonso Capa is a clinical psychologist who sees a lot of Latinos and immigrants all around the state. He says his patients have been having more issues with things like anxiety, panic attacks, and PTSD lately. There's a lot of going on that they don't feel they can control given the circumstances. So before the pandemic, it was getting worse. Things have changed, not necessarily for the better. Kappa says people who are undocumented have many concerns as it is. Fear of calling the police if they need help, having chronic medical problems but no health insurance, and, like Agustin, not knowing if their future will be spent in the U.S. or somewhere else. And Kappa says documented residents might not have to deal with the same problems. There's definitely a financial struggle. Unlike us, they don't have their buffer. You know, like, oh, we we have some savings or the government will help us or we can reach out to maybe other family members close by that will support us. That luxury that we have to get all those resources, they don't have that. 
COVID-19 has hit Latinos disproportionately hard, harder than any other racial group in Colorado. They make up just over 20% of the state's population, but account for nearly 40% of its COVID-19 cases. And in Denver, Latinos have significantly higher rates of COVID-related hospitalizations. There's also the fact that some undocumented people are more likely to be essential workers, from doctors and nurses to farm workers and grocery store employees. Those people are at high Higher risk of exposure. And if they need help, be it physically or mentally, they might forego it because of their legal status. Though Kappa says they might also hesitate to address their mental health issues because of how it would make them look. It's still a pretty significant stigma. And we look at it like only the quote unquote crazy go to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So what's being done to help undocumented immigrants deal with all of this? It depends where you look. In Washington, D.C., lawmakers have been in talks for months on the next coronavirus stimulus package. One version would help undocumented people, shielding some of them from deportation and helping them financially. Meanwhile, in Colorado, the state offers rental assistance and emergency Medicaid to everyone, regardless of their citizenship status. That includes emergency testing and treatment for COVID-19. But assistance with the mental health problems isn't quite as robust. The state, however, does offer a free crisis line for anyone who needs it. Then there's the city level. In Denver, Councilwoman Robin Kanich is working to strengthen a relief fund for people who need help but may not qualify for federal assistance. They're using it to pay for their housing. It's going to purchase food. It's going to purchase the emergency uh, needs that they have. It's also helping to pay bills, sometimes medical bills and sometimes the cell phone bill, which is a lifeline for people. Kenich says this fund came about after conversations with undocumented immigrants at the beginning of the pandemic. She learned how getting laid off paired with being ineligible for federal assistance was causing intense stress throughout entire immigrant families. It begins first with seeing everybody in your village, even when they sometimes have had reason to be less visible, to step forward less often and ask for help to be less willing to go into a government building. Nearly 200 donors managed to raise $1.7 million for the fund. In fact, it was initially so large that it was dispersed to folks all around Colorado. But the money pool quickly dried up, and Kanich wants to revitalize it for those who still need help. So crazy. Yes, ma'am. I'm, I'm coming. Yep. For Ana Agustin, her community and family have been vital, and keeping her emotions in check has been important, too. She says she used to get so overwhelmed that she would cry every day, but not anymore. Whenever bad things are happening, I smile, like, really, because I'm like, come on, let's see who's going to be come out with winner. The bad problems are me. I take it more as a battle that I'm going to win, you know, because things are going to come like bad, you know. But I, I tend to be like, uh-uh, not today, not today. Agustin says she doesn't know if she'll be around tomorrow, but she does know she's going to keep her head up and keep working her butt off. I'm May Ortega, CPR News. Colorado is getting some love from National Geographic. The publication recently featured eight places to stargaze in Colorado in what it calls a coronavirus-conscious road trip. One of the spots is Great Sand Dunes National Park. I spoke with longtime ranger Fred Bunch last year when the park landed a dark sky designation. Fred, it's interesting. You're a resources manager. I guess light 
and darkness, that's a resource, would you say? Oh, very much. Half the park is after dark, as we say, and dark night skies allow for uh, animals and uh, other living things that are active at night. And particularly at the dunes, when it gets so hot during the day, many, many of the creatures are nocturnal. And then the cultural part of it is the stories. Every culture across the world have tales that come from the heavens. Help me understand what it looks like at the sand dunes at night when I look up at the sky. You stand in silent amazement when you look up at the night skies over great sand dunes because you can see stars, the order of magnitude you couldn't even think about in a city or an area where there's light pollution. And so you look at into the depths of the heavens. It's almost indescribable, the awe that you get when you look in the night sky. Now, help me understand, is the great sand dunes now a international dark sky park simply because it's never really had light pollution? Or have you taken steps to like reduce the light pollution at the park? We have taken steps to reduce the external lighting, put it on motion sensors, lower the amperage. And so that's one piece of it. The other parts of it are that you have to measure the night sky through sky quality meters to actually show how dark it is. And the third part of that is we have to reach out to the public and inform them about the benefits of dark night skies. Ah, I see. So part of this is an education campaign that will continue as people visit the park. This is fascinating. You have to measure the darkness. That's right. There's a, an instrument that we use when there's no moon or, uh, and it's clear skies. We can go out and, and do readings. And some of our readings are almost to the capacity of what the instruments can read. Now, I understand you have with you a volunteer who helped make this happen, Fred. Who are you going to pass the phone over to? Well, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Bob Bully, an engineer, and he's volunteered for us for several years, and we couldn't have done this without him. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. Why was this important to you? It, um, the world's population, we have lost our ability to see the heavens at night. NASA estimates that only 17% of Americans can see our home galaxy, the Milky Way, from their home locations. But parks like Great Sand Dunes offer a refuge where people can reconnect with the night sky. And this is important. The light bulb, the incandescent light bulb that Edison invented, the first commercial light bulb, was invented in 1879. That is 140 years ago. All life on Earth, plant life, animal life, human life, insect life, evolved hundreds of thousands of years to millions of years before the light bulb changed our world. And we're struggling to adapt. Wildlife is struggling to adapt, and humans are struggling to adapt. Wow, I've never quite heard it put that way. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. And we'll put a link to National Geographic's Colorado stargazing road trip, including the sand dunes, on the Colorado Matters page at CPR.org. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for joining us and to the team that brings this program to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. It's been a pleasure to spend time with you today on CPR News.